After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. It's a simple prayer from St. Augustine, Lord, command what you will and give what you command for our building up in Jesus' sake. In his name we pray, amen. Well, coming again to this passage, our theme continues to be purified by love, which makes one of the most difficult parts of my job so easy because the sermon title becomes the same thing, part two. Purified by love. The illustration of Jesus washing his disciples' feet is still certainly fresh in the minds of all of his disciples with him, the twelve, his closest friends. And in light of that, it is striking that Jesus would move from such a powerful image of his humble, purifying love for his own to speaking of the one who would ultimately betray him. As we talked about last week, Jesus quotes from the Psalms, and he says, Just as scripture will be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. The imagery is powerful, isn't it? Jesus humbles himself, bows low to wash the stinky, dirty feet of his disciples. And one of those disciples' response is to lift his heel right in the face of Christ's love. 
it's sad. We think of Judas so much in terms as the ultimate betrayer. And truly, there's no one else that Jesus describes as someone who, for whom it would be better if he'd never been born. You don't get that description in the rest of Scripture for anyone. And yet, this motivation and this deception that Judas reveals to us and walks in, and ultimately which walks him to his death, is still a very real issue for us today. Our call this morning from God's word may be summed up like this. In light of the new covenant, purifying a new people, walk in love. Of course, our central idea has to come from verse 31 in this passage. After Judas leaves, Jesus gives a new command. Now the Son of Man is glorified. God will glorify him. This is perhaps confusing language as you heard it and read it along. There's a bunch of glorifying going on. The Father glorifying the Son glorifying the Father. You should just know this. That just as sure as the Father is glorified in the obedience of the Son, so the Father will glorify his Son as well. The glory is shared between Jesus, God the Son, and his Father. There is no hierarchy in the reception of glory, but there are roles. And later on, as we continue what is um, famously called the farewell discourse is what we're beginning today, we'll find that the third person of the Trinity also has a role to play in the glory of Christ and in the building up of his people. But that's for later on. For today's purposes, as you consider that call, which is in the sermon outline from your bulletin, put in quotes this idea of light. Jesus doesn't talk about himself as light in this passage, but we've heard it two times so far in the Gospel of John. And it seems striking to me that the thing that I got hung up on the most in this passage is why in the world, in verse 30, does John want us to know what time of day it was? If we couldn't already assume. Why does he point out, after receiving the morsel of bread, he, that is Judas, immediately went out and it was night. seems to me important to consider these small details that the authors of scripture bring to our attention. And so therefore we consider this the, the darkest moment of history in so many ways. When the son of God, who had done nothing but loved perfectly, is betrayed. It is indeed the darkest night of the soul. And it's relatable. Look back to the beginning of the passage in verse 21. After saying these things, after he explained the foot washing, and now he continues to explain it in verse 31. But in verse 21, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And before that, John lets us know the situation of Christ's heart. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This is not troubled in the way that perhaps we might have felt this past week as we try to juggle our schedule here or there. But it's troubled in the way many of us felt this past week in hearing the great news of terrible sin being hidden for so long and now coming to light. Or perhaps it's, perhaps it's the troubling that we felt in a broken relationship where we know we have to have a conversation with someone that we just simply can't imagine how that can work out. 
This troubled spirit of Christ is not one of logistics, but one of an emotional, heartfelt turmoil. And it's brought on by a looming evil that he's already announced. One of you will betray me. Can you imagine sitting as one of the twelve and hearing Jesus say that? After walking with Jesus, living with him, with eleven other guys for three years... One of you, Jesus says, will betray me. And how can anyone not first think, is it going to be me? And then how can anyone not secondly think, no, 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 no. It's got to be. Or maybe. Or maybe he doesn't mean any of us here. You know, all the justification and all the consideration that goes on in the disciples' minds, he then reveals the betrayer in broad daylight, though it is perfectly night. The light of Christ reveals that he knows all things. And so while we can relate to this troubling, Jesus then reveals the betrayer. In verses 21 through 30, the betrayer is revealed. And he fulfills scripture. If you remember last week, we talked a little bit about this word betrayer. And in the Greek, it, has, it carries this idea of changing hands, of passing something from one hand to another. And what's so fascinating is that the way in which Jesus reveals his betrayer is by giving a morsel of bread to the one who would betray him. Peter, for once, is speechless, unable to actually ask Jesus the question that he and everyone else has on their minds. So interestingly enough, rather than speaking, Peter motions over to his fisherman friend John, who's sitting right next to Jesus, and gives the message, ask him who it is. Apparently Peter doesn't find out until later on. Apparently none of them find out until later on. But when, G, when Pete, when, sorry, this would be John, when John asks Jesus, who is it, Lord? Jesus does not simply say, it's Judas. He continues to teach, even in this revelatory statement. He continues to shine light where it is just night. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, this is a very common practice in the setting and a little bit of background for what this feast would have looked like. They're not sitting up on chairs as y'all are right now in front of a table. They're, they're lying on their side, on their left side. Their right hand would be used then to eat, their left hand to hold up their heads. And they'd be circling a smaller table, not high off the floor at all. And uh, commentators believe that John, the apostle, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, would have been sitting at the right hand of Jesus. And so actually very, very close to him, uh, commentators say that Jesus or John was actually able to simply look up and speak to Jesus. Sitting very, very closely. I don't imagine that any of us at our lunch after church today are going to be sitting that close together. But it's striking, too, because there the message is given as well. The disciple whom Jesus loved, pictured by this closeness, the purification of being close to Christ. And John will call himself this a handful more times in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because that was the most defining thing about him. That was the thing that if you asked him, John, what are you about? Where do you work? What do you do? Where do you live? Those kinds of things. He would just simply say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And he wouldn't mean I'm the one he loved and he loved no one else. 
He would just be saying that the most important thing about him is the reception of God's gracious love through Jesus Christ. So John finds out who this is, and the morsel is dipped. This common practice was done by the head of the feast. The host would perhaps find a piece of bread or whatever's being eaten that would be particularly delicious. And he would save that to give to an honored guest. He would then dip it and hand it personally, change hands of that morsel over to the honored guest. And what's fascinating here is while we have John the Apostle sitting at the right hand of Jesus, most commentators again agree that if Jesus was passing this morsel off to somebody, he wouldn't have got up away from the table, stepped over everybody, and then handed the morsel over to Judas. But the most likely situation is that Judas was on Jesus' left hand. Which in this setting is the place of honor. So again, think back to the disciples, thinking, scratching their heads, who is the betrayer? Who could it possibly be? They knew Judas had the money bag. Maybe he was supposed to buy something for the feast as it continued. Or maybe he was supposed to give something to the poor, another very common practice on Passover night. But none of them assumed that the one who was sitting at the left hand of Jesus, the place of honor around the table, would be the one who would ultimately betray Jesus and betray all of them as well. What Jesus says to Judas is striking and ominous. What you are going to do, do quickly. In other words, he's saying, do what is in your heart. What's in his heart? This terrifying image. And I hope you heard I intended to read this slowly as, as you kind of put yourself in John, the disciple's viewpoint, watching all of this happen, we might wonder, John, why didn't you stand up and go, it's Judas, guys, get him, stop him, he's going to betray Jesus. I don't think it was because John was so super holy sitting there going, yes, scripture must be fulfilled. Maybe he was, and I'm willing to apologize to him in eternity if necessary. But my guess is that John's silence is a an awestruck silence. Judas? He's the betrayer? He was in charge of the money. We trusted him. Of course John can hardly speak at this moment. Jesus says to Judas, do what is in your heart so I can do what is in mine. Which is ultimately to lay his life down. To shine the light of his love so that all of his disciples might be purified by it. And it is then in the light of the betrayer's departure that Jesus gives this new commandment in verse 31, begins that section. This new commandment. How is it new? Uh, If you study the theology of the Old Testament, you can see, and Jesus even confirms this in another place in a conversation, where someone comes up to him and says, okay, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? What is it that we're supposed to do? What's the summary of the law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor, how? As yourself, right? Perhaps more literally, as much as you love yourself. So this new commandment sounds very simple. Look at it again with me, if you will, please. Starting in verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. That colon is important, isn't it? Because this is a new commandment. This is not the old commandment. 
Perhaps in this moment, his disciples would have said, new? I'm really confused right now. First of all, one of us is betraying you. Now you're moving on to talking about love, which we know that's what we're supposed to do. But the second part of what he says is so telling because the newness of the commandment is the redefinition that Christ gives to what love really is. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he gives the goal, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The standard is set by Christ himself. And in giving a new commandment, he makes allusions to what's going on already in the minds of everyone in Jerusalem at the time. They're all thinking about the Passover. They're thinking about their ancestors in Egypt being led out. And, and actually, while there was the, the, the angel of death that came through that night that they left Egypt, they remembered, like, our, our, our ancestors protected their homes by putting the blood of the lamb on the doors. They're thinking in these terms, and they're thinking about the salvation of the lamb, that they were able to be let out of slavery, and then they're brought to Sinai where the law comes. And remember, very important theological process here is that salvation precedes law. Law does not precede salvation. We are not called to get our lives in line with God's character so that we can be a part of God's family. But the opposite is true. God will bring us into his family and then show us the standard set to him. And that, I think, is also why Jesus brings this commandment at this point. You've seen my love, he says. Light has shone in your life. Now go and shine that light of love. Be purified by my love. Distance and pain are coming, he says. In a little while I am with you, little children. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. There will be distance, there will be pain, but there will also be glory. Such glory that Jesus says is already happened. Back up at verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, past tense, already completed action. The work of Christ is as sure as the betrayal of Judas. There is no turning back. The hour has fully come. And he has to face what his father has called him to. Even his impending departure, which we'll talk about later, he still shows great care, deep care, to those whom he loved. And I couldn't help but think of um, the ending to the first Chronicles of Narnia book when Aslan is going off to the stone table to die in Edmund's place. It's the only way he could save him was to lay down his life. And you have the two Pevensey girls who walk with him a short while and keep him company. But ultimately, he needed to leave them and go handle this on his own. There's great confidence in Christ at the end of this that seems contrary to the beginning of his troubled spirit. But this is how Christ endured these next chapters to the end of the Gospel of John. Put another way, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Well, if the light is shining, the light of Christ's love purifies us, it is the night of the world that leads us to believe that our sin is concealed, that our sin is not a big deal, that our sin is perfectly permissible. 
1971, a man who called himself Dan Cooper uh, boarded an airplane from Oregon to Washington, and he had a small briefcase in his lap. I don't know if you've heard this story. I just heard it the first time this past week. While he was on the plane, he motioned for one of the flight attendants to come to him, and he mentioned that in, inside of his briefcase there was a bomb. And what he wanted was a parachute and $200,000. And he wanted the flight attendant to go and tell the pilot what was going on. Ultimately, he got what he wanted. He, in his evil intention, had everyone on that plane right where he wanted them to be. And there was no other way around it. He diverted the flight, landed somewhere else, left everybody, exchanged the, the, his prisoners for his $200,000 and his parachute. The flight then took off again, and he jumped out of the plane, not with the briefcase with his bomb, with the briefcase with the $200,000, landed somewhere in South America, and all these years later, we have no idea what happened to him. these kind of unsolved mysteries that over time sometimes can seem interesting and intriguing and we kind of wonder what was going on here and, and where could he be now? But it is the things that happen close to our hearts that don't intrigue us, but they shock us and they disgust us because we see evil seemingly to triumph in the dark night of this world. Judas, in this passage, is free, it seems, to work out the impurity of his own dark intentions, just as this Dan Cooper was able to in 1971. It seems that he has his scheme perfectly set, and no one is going to uncover his dark purpose before it is far too late, before he comes with soldiers to the garden and betrays our Lord with a kiss. But Judas isn't the only one who is affected by what John points out in verse 30, the night of this moment. But in verses 36 through 38, after that commandment is given, and this beautiful new induction into a new covenant is being made, and Jesus is going to continue to um, open that up to his disciples as he talks, but Peter stops him, it seems. And in verse 36, he says, Lord, where are you going? He says, jump back to the previous thing you said. I, I heard all that stuff about love. I can't handle that right now. What I'm hung up on is the idea of you departing. And so I'm going to miss the instruction entirely. If you remember Peter's last words during the foot washing, as Jesus approached him, he said, Lord, do you wash my feet? The Greek wants us to emphasize those pronouns. You, I, and I think the same thing may be going on here as well in Peter's words. When Jesus responds to him, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow afterwards. Verse 37, Peter's response, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Why not now? What's going to happen? And then he makes a, an impassioned plea. I will lay down my life for you. We all know Peter is very unable to do that very thing in this moment. He's hung up on Jesus' departure. He misses the instruction. And he makes a very bold and foolish claim. See, in this night that Jesus, that Judas, that John, that all the disciples and Peter 
were enduring together, Judas found opportunity to work out the impurity of his dark intentions, and Peter just felt lost. The night seemed to conceal the words of Christ in his own heart. And all he could do was to bring up whatever kind of confident devotion so that he could say, Jesus, I feel like you think I'm uncommitted. I feel like you think I'm unable to follow you in this moment. I want to prove myself to you. I will lay down my life for you. Peter, again, always able to say, but not always able to do. Will you lay down your life for me? I kind of imagine Jesus putting a hand on Peter's shoulder, not condescendingly, but this is not Jesus saying, I don't want anything to do with you. But that you don't really understand what this night has done to your heart. What you have set yourself up for is, is a really tremendous failure. Not the same kind of failure as Judas, but a similar one, all the same. And, and a question came into my heart in, in all of this. What causes those in privileged positions to betray Christ as Judas did, or ultimately to deny Christ as Peter did? They had a purified position. John, the apostle, sat at the right hand. Judas sitting at the left. Anyone around that table was privileged because they were not the only 12 disciples that followed Jesus around. Can you imagine being the 13th disciple that's following, and then Jesus says, sorry, there's only room for 13 of us here. And shuts the door. This is a privileged position. These are, in one sense, in one place, Jesus actually calls them the foundation of the church. I'm going to build my church on the confession that these 12 are going to have. Ultimately, 11. Why is it, what is it, that causes those in privileged positions to betray or to deny Christ? We've already pointed out, these are not people that you would expect in any way. We paint When we read the Gospels and we hear of Judas, we already kind of paint him with that angry eyebrow and that uh, curly mustache. And, you know, he's, he's wearing dark clothes. He's always off in the corner meddling and thinking. Of he wasn't like that at all. Judas was one of the guys. Maybe even one of the best of the guys. Peter was Jesus' right-hand man, or at least he wanted to be. What is it in verse 27 when Jesus speaks to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly? What is it that stops Judas from saying, what am I doing? What is it for Peter after Jesus has already been betrayed and arrested and he is approached three times and asked, do you know him? Are you one of his disciples? What is it about Peter that, that even at the point where he could look at Jesus and say, I, I don't know him. Stop asking me. And even the third time, the Bible tells us that he could even say it with a cursing. That he could cuss and say, there's absolutely no way. I do not know Jesus. It's not so easy. But I do think that this mentioning of night helps us understand the setting in which this kind of grievous sin can happen. And that it's the same today. Sin thrives where it cannot be seen. Have you ever done work in a house and torn out drywall and realized that moment, this job is way bigger than I thought it was going to be because there was something hidden back there, black mold or maybe something worse? It's concealed. 
Judas, upon hearing the words of Jesus, what you're going to do, do quickly, can't just simply stop and say, no, Lord, I can't. I can't do it. You, you've been so kind to me. You, you've loved me. You've, you've washed my feet. Oh, I can't do what I was about to do. I need to confess it to you. I need your forgiveness. He doesn't go that route at all because he hasn't been purified by love. Because the night, the darkness, has overcome his heart. That same darkness that John tells us in the beginning can't overcome the light, but can so easily overcome our hearts. Such that even in recent events, we can hear names that we would say, how could it ever be? This person, that person. Darkness overcomes the heart that has not been purified by the love of Christ. It overcomes the heart that does not wish to cling to Christ, but that can so easily say, I'll take the morsel and I'll go. And fascinating, it says in verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And then in the Greek in verse 31, when Jesus is talking about the Son of Man being glorified and God being glorified in him, verse 32 actually, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's the same word, it's immediately. It was as immediate as Judas's betrayal that Jesus was immediately glorified. And so an encouragement for us in the midst of this conflict of the night is that no matter what free reign sin seems to have in this dark world, it cannot touch the glory of Christ. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. The only one who was faithful to God in this dark night of the soul was the one who was most troubled. Was the one who had to lay down his life. When Christians, or so-called Christians, trouble the world, know that Christ was also troubled. When we are troubled by what so-called Christians do in this life, know that Christ is also troubled. But as I said earlier, he is not only troubled, but he is also confident. The darkness cannot overcome the light. The night may be a mask that can deceive others, but it only truly deceives its wearer. Because there is nothing that, will, that is hidden that will not be made known, Jesus tells us. The mask of night ultimately will only deceive the one who wears it and who uses it to his own personal advantage, or perhaps even in Peter's case, who is just simply confused by it, who, who at one moment is hearing all this stuff about love and saying, I need to prove myself to Jesus, because he's saying that he's going away. Misunderstanding can lead us astray as well. But there's a difference, isn't there? In the Gospel of Luke, verse 31 of chapter 22, the same story happens, and, and as, as Satan is allowed to enter into Judas, a terrifying thing, right? First it was Satan put this idea in his heart, then Satan enters into Judas. But we have Peter over here, and Satan is still involved, even though John doesn't highlight it. But one of the things I think is most interesting and helpful in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, if you're curious later, Jesus, in this same conversation with Peter, says... Simon, Simon. You remember why he called him Simon? In, in the other Gospels, Jesus would go back and forth between Simon and Peter. Simon was his old name, Peter his new name. And in the moments of Peter's weakness, he called him Simon. Anyhow, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. I know I've brought this up before, but I often think about what Peter thought when he heard that. 
okay, Lord, that sounds absolutely terrifying. I want nothing to do with that. Please tell me that you have told him no. That you will not allow Satan to touch my life. And it's so easy for us in this world to get this kind of overconfidence in ourselves, in our own faith, as it were, that we believe that Jesus would never let anything bad happen to us. And that if we could just believe that a little more firmly, then it could actually be true, but it's not. Peter might have said in his heart, oh Lord, tell me Satan doesn't have any place in my life, right? Just tell him he's nowhere, he can't be. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. Oh good, what have you prayed for me, Jesus? I have prayed for you that when you are restored to me, you will strengthen your brothers. Oh, I imagine on Peter's face. Sorrow, disappointment. The Lord knows our weaknesses. And for those who are truly his, he preserves and purifies them with his love. Such that we can have a confidence that is not in ourselves. Peter's confidence in this statement, I will lay down my life for you. You know where his confidence is. It's not in Christ. It's not even in the profound impact that Christ has had in his life. It is in his own ability why is it? What causes those in privileged positions to betray and to deny Jesus? It is either a deep-rooted love for the darkness that is unpurified by the love of Christ, or in Peter's case, it is the confusion of self-confidence that we are often told in various ways, if you want to be a good, strong Christian, then you better make some declaration with your life. I will lay down my life for you. These kind of declarations don't carry anything if they're not rooted in the love of Christ, but in ourselves. J.C. Ryle, my friend from the 1800s, says, He that allows Satan to sow wicked thoughts will soon find within his heart a crop of wicked habits. Habits is a lot scarier than explosive one-time evils. Because habits turn into those things, but habits are those things that dull our hearts to the love of God. So it is important that we not let Satan sow thoughts into our hearts and certainly not get to the point where with Judas, it says that he entered Judas. Good grief, that's terrifying. We might recognize rightly that Jesus warns us, hey, Satan is running around like a, he's a prowling lion. I should have written this passage down, but in Peter, Peter tells us this, he's a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. Stand firm in your faith, stand firm in Christ, not in your own ability. When we stand in our own ability, we fall before we can even get the words out. There's no hope for us if we're going to trust in ourselves. If, if recent events or events in, that you've heard in your lifetime of Christians failing miserably and bringing blights to the name of Christ, if those haunt you, if those worry you about, what about my own place before Christ? The only safe sanctuary is to trust that the purifying work of Jesus at the cross will create in you a simple, steady trust in his perfect love. That's what we need. We don't need one times, watch this, Jesus. I'm going to lay my life down for you. Those things aren't going to work. Just as Satan's sowing ideas into the hearts and minds of people creates evil habits that continue, Christ wants a habit of love in our life. That's that new commandment. That's why it's so important. 
for us to recognize we can't do it on our own. We can't fulfill this new commandment by ourselves. We need to be deeply connected to the one in whom we might have that love. Jesus says in John 15, it's so hard to not jump ahead to the rest of these chapters. Spend some time this week reading the rest of the Gospel of John. It will encourage your soul and do so much for you. But in John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. You can't fulfill the law of love unless you are abiding in Christ. Friends, that is why before you get off and say, I've got some major ministry that I'm going to just be awesome at, that God has put in my life, that I, that's, he's calling me to this next big thing. Before you do that, establish your life in Christ. Establish habits of being purified by the love of Christ daily. That's why our encouragement as a church is not, hey, make sure you come to church on Sunday, yeah, but then the next most important thing is to get out and evangelize, to get out and to do these ministries, to get out. No, make sure that you're united with the body of Christ. Make sure you're not united to Christ continually because who you are in Christ is more important than what you do. The starting point is necessary. We have to have these things in order. There's much at stake. Christ's command to love requires a close relationship with him. How else can we do this? Judas and Peter, one was let go in love. Even in the moment that Jesus said, you're free to do what's in your heart, he was reaching out to him in love, and Judas chose to despise that love. Peter, not let go in love, but was held onto in love. Judas took advantage of Christ's love and his grace so that he could do whatever he wanted. Peter wished to honor Christ's love and grace. And in his bold claim, I'll lay my life down for you. Look at what I can do. Jesus says, wash your feet, Peter. Better yet, come and let me wash your feet. How does Peter truly avoid becoming like Judas? And how do we avoid becoming those who trouble the world rather than loving each other? to be close to the purifying love of Christ, to endure there, to be like this disciple whom Jesus loved, who was so close that when he was asked by Peter, who is it? Find out. All he had to do was look straight up, and his face was right there. When we focus on the privileges of our position in this life, it leads to the abuse of that power so quickly. But when our eyes look up to see Christ, we find a steady, simple trust in his love. And it is that tortoise, sometimes looking tortoise pace in the Christian life, in the life of the church, that is steady and continuous and simple, that just simply says Christ has given us a simple command to love as he has loved us. We are going to take slow and steady steps to make that possible. That's why we don't do outreach every single weekend. That's, not this, that's why this isn't our 18th of UBS, right? We're going to do one VBS. We're going to do it really well because we're going to take these slow, simple, steady steps in the love of Christ by being in his word, by being together, by praying together, by doing all these things so that when the time comes, we can have, Lord willing, a, a good impact on the lives of others that need his love. Christ is the one who will lay down his life, not Peter. Peter will later on. And that's what Jesus says to him. You will follow me eventually. But now is not the time. Only Christ can do what Christ can do. We cannot take his place. We cannot stand by his side. We can only stand at his, sit at his feet 
and receive from him if we hope to give to others. And from that, we find an enduring purity, the enduring limitless love of God. We just sang a little bit ago. Could we with ink the ocean filled, fill and were the sky of parchment made? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. But that is our job. The love of God in Christ revealed through our lives to each other. And the simple means of it is the simple and steady trust in the light of Christ's love at the cross. It's when we burst out of the, at the starting line with our full gusto, all of our strength, to, to start the race well, which is a good motivation. But when you're running a 5K, you don't sprint at the beginning of the race. Because even if you get ahead of everybody else, you're going to run out of gas. And they're going to come up behind you before you know it. You know, not too long ago in chapter 12, we talked about Mary breaking that perfume and washing the feet of Jesus. And we talked about the idea of making sure there's nothing left in the tank. Do you remember that? Making sure that when our life is spent, it is spent for Christ. And that when we see him, we don't go, oh, I could have done this, I could have done that. That's the ultimate desire of the Christian. But it's not accomplished by quick and flashy and showy and upfront stuff. It's the simple and steady work of trusting the love of Christ moment by moment. And that is our walk to complete this this morning. As little children, purified by love, that we might display the law of love to the world. I have four things for you to end with. First of all, retain your identity. You are little children, and that is a blessing. It is not an insult that Jesus calls his disciples little children. Retain your identity, little children. Little children rely on their mom and their dad moment by moment. If you have little ones, you know how true that is. There's no hope for spiritual maturity without the presence of Christ. And there's no outgrowing the gospel. If you you ever think, you know, you come to church and you go, oh my goodness, he's just preaching Christ over again. I know Jesus. You're not on the road to maturity. (laughs) Because the more we go on, the more we find out we know so little. The more we find we need more of just that simple truth of Jesus. This, this past week in our Bible time at home, I asked my two-year-old, um, what is true about Jesus? And I was looking for some specific answer, but it went out the window when she gave me her answer. What is true about Jesus? And my two-year-old says, I love him. That was it. Just this serene smile on her face. And it wasn't in contrast to the passage in 1 John that we mentioned earlier of we love him because he first loved us. John wouldn't be looking at my two-year-old and saying, you don't get it. You think, no. What's happening and what I pray is happening in the life of my kid is that they can't help but think, like John the apostle, who are you? What's so important about you? I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. He loves me. And I love him. And the goal of all of that in our identity is to do this job of letting the world know that we are Jesus' disciples. That should be the desire of Christ's disciples. We want everyone to know who we are because who we are is all about him. It's about what Christ has done. We want people to know what he's done in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. Secondly, remember the source of purity. The love of Christ poured out in the new covenant purifies the entire life of the church. Remember the source of purity. In the light and in the night. 
Christ's Spirit has been sent to us to ever be there present in the moments where you wake up in the middle of the night shaken from some terrible dream. The Spirit is there with you. When you're sitting at your desk and that email comes in and you go, that's the last straw, I can't take another one. The Spirit of God is there with you, purifying you by the love of Christ again and again. This foot washing is not a thing that we come to Christ for every couple months or so. It is, Lord, plunge me. You know, keep me in your presence. And that is his promise in 14.18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He does that by his spirit. Thirdly, realize the danger. Jesus leaves no room for us to think that we can remain pure on our own. The job is not believe in Jesus. Okay, now you better stay in that exact spot and don't move from it. Peter's fear was that Jesus thought he was uncommitted. Don't let that fear seep into your heart. Wouldn't the devil love us to think that Jesus thinks little of us? He knows how little we are. He calls us little children. But that does not think, mean that he thinks little of us. He loves us. We are his. And he has no intention of losing any of those who are truly his by faith in him alone. Last thing, rejoice in the return. We have retained your identity, little children. Remember the source of purity, the love of Christ. Realize the danger, the night is here. And then lastly, rejoice in the return. Christ departed for a little while where no disciple could ever follow him. When he went to the cross, he did something we could never do. But one day, the glory of the Father in the Son will make all things right. That day is coming quicker and quicker. And, and as the night seems darker and darker, know, Christian, that the light is coming. Know that Christ will return, that there is a glorious day, what we're going to sing about in just a moment here. When sin was as black as could be, we, his little children, are purified to be prepared for his final return. When evil seems to be winning, Christ is still glorified, and we are in him. Would you bow your heads with me, please, as we prepare to sing to the Lord one last time? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise of Christ this morning that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word never fails, and we trust your word to do what our words could never do. Just as Christ at the cross has done for us what we could never do for ourselves nor for another person. We thank you for the purifying work of Christ's love that is communicated by your word. We pray that you would continue to do that all the way to this glorious day that we will sing of. Christ will return, our beloved, we, his church, purified for him. Let it be so for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.